Hello and welcome to the Faces of Food podcast. I'm Dr. Sandro, the CEO of EAT, and we're recording live at the EAT Stockholm Food Forum 2019. And I'm here with the amazing urban designer and social scientist, Jeff Rizm from Girl. How are you? Doing wonderful. Thank so you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you end up in Stockholm? Well, so I'm an American uh, engineer and social scientist. Uh, I've been living and working in Copenhagen for the last 18 years at Gale for 14. Mm. And um, I found out about EAT basically last year and attended the forum last year. And I'm here again and very happy to – I was just on a panel on urban resilience early in the afternoon. So it's a great place to soak up wonderful atmosphere. So we're working you hard. Yes, back that's good. To back. That's good Absolutely. to hear. <laughs> so, we've got a thousand people here this yeah. week, and we really want to, you know, we've we've worked quite hard to find a few key bright minds that are really shaping or reshaping parts of the great food system transformation. You're one of those. That's an honor. And, and we we want to go behind the scenes though for a moment, really delve into, I suppose, your life, your work, your everyday life, and really yep. understand what drives you. So. Let's start where, of course, eat is always going to start, at the dining table. Yeah. If I'm over at your house, what are we eating? Well, in Denmark, right, you have a lot of dark bread, mm. right? So, you're having some of that. The rugbrod. Yeah, exactly. I think um, my, actually, my wife has sort of indoctrinated me. She's a health science researcher. And uh, she says that breakfast is by far the most important meal of the day and that it's important to eat the same thing. Because then you, I have two small kids, oh. and you don't have to have a conversation. It's just, hey, we're having this for breakfast. So, boring or not, it's very practical. We have some nice oatmeal, raisins, almonds every single day. Mm. And I used to fight it. I used to be like, I want some, you know, I want some variation. I still get the variation on the weekends, but now I totally believe in my wife's same thing every day, at least five days a week. Uh, at the breakfast table. That's true because we, we often sort of struggle to think what to eat for dinner, but we accept that every morning for breakfast we eat the same thing. I never thought about that before, but that's... Well, I used to always try some... to reinvent the wheel, but now I've got <laughs> way more brain capacity that I could just decide. I, I don't have to decide every morning, right? So, give us a weekend then, morning ritual. What what happens on the weekend in the life of Jeff? Oh, well, I live just around the corner from, I would say, Copenhagen's best underground bakery. Oh, this Not, is very contentious. Which one? Uh, it's called Svanica. Oh. And I, and so I, underground is that it's not in a cave, but it is less known than like the heart clandestine bakeries. Exactly. Mm, it how very is Danish. Yes. So born home bakers come over. I live on Ama, nice little part of town close to the water yep. on the beach. Cruise around over there, get a sourdough. It's still warm. Mm. Take it the 20 meters back to my house and uh, enjoy that with all kinds of goodies on top. Yum. And so that's what. You get up two in the morning, but what gets you up in the morning? What, what, what's what's your what's getting you excited? I got very excited what, about yeah. my bakery there, didn't I? Um, <laughs> Apart from clandestine Danish bakeries, <laughs> the dark uh, life of the dark uh, bread. Exactly. Well, when it's not sort of you know, I have a six-year-old son that gets up uh, at six a.m. every morning. But more for myself, I've always been really fascinated, actually, with um, differences in people. I have this very kind of strange, unique background where I grew up. In you know relatively poor area of Pueblo, Colorado, uh, my mom and dad got divorced, uh, and so I was actually on welfare uh, for the first you know five six years of my life. But then I had a wealthy family out in New York City, my dad's family, so I could go over there and become a part of this like yacht club world. And so I very early age had to sort of switch from being like the the poor white kid in a very Hispanic neighborhood to then going and needing to be the the preppy 
yachter in the East Coast. And so I've been fascinated. I think that sort of turned me on to this idea of social science and, and how we're social animals and how we sort of have a collective understanding of our environment and our surroundings. And so that sort of personal experience has really driven me to think about urban design and how we bring people together, especially people that are different mm. uh, from one another. So that sort of exposure to different walks of life is really what drives my work. And what I hope to to try to do is uh, make places that invite for all kinds of different types of people and all kinds of different activities. It's a great segue because you've already left the home and you're on your way to work. So let's do let's do that together. What yeah. What are you working on at the moment? What's what's happening in the magic the magic land that is Girl? Yeah. Uh, well, Gail is traditionally, you know, an urban design practice, and we've always focused on the life between buildings. But uh, in my role, we're really trying to push the boundaries of what that means. So. Typically, you know, we work with streets and spaces, and, and I think of those as those are systems that we share, mm. essentially. And so, we're really excited about the work we're now doing with the food system, which is another system that we share. We each make daily choices about our food consumption, but by doing so, we impact this much larger system. Mm. And so, we're actually working with the Eat Foundation, we're working with C40, we're working with the, client, with the uh, city of Copenhagen to try to take this amazing Eat Lancet report, and I'm shamelessly... Uh, plugging you all, but take this amazing Eat Lancet we, we report. We don't mind. It's okay, okay, good, good. <laughs> take this amazing scientific report that's that's filled with a, a very different way to consume food and then try to say, well, how do we actually design neighborhoods and communities or access to some of these food environments in a way that can invite for that behavior change, essentially? Mm -hmm. So, So that's a very, you know, all-encompassing project that I'm especially excited about. Because it really sort of pushes the boundary, I think, of urban design, and it's very cross-disciplinary, and it's about bringing people together. Like I, you know, gets me out of bed every day. So you're you're working hard. You're taking a systems approach, and you're also working with loads of different people. I can imagine there must be challenges in this sort of work. You're wanting to transform an urban system to make health the path of least resistance. I mean, that's that's no small task. What, no. what are some of the challenges you're facing? Man, there's a lot, uh, right? I mean, you the, there's everything from having a common vocabulary, mm. you know, using the same words, but having that mean something different. Uh, like from, what? Well, even if you say, you know, I, I talk about um, the urban environment. Yeah. And in architectural world, everyone knows what that means. And I think other people are like, well, the environment means green and then urban means city. So what uh, what on earth is the urban environment, right? Or if we talk about foodscapes, I mentioned yeah. that before. What's a foodscape, right? And in the in the design world, that sort of makes sense. That's you know the 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 physical um, visibility of food in our in our city. So those I could go on and on. Oh, so it's the, not it's not a building made out of hot dogs. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> and those are even the more convoluted ones. But even just talking about things like health or yeah. invitation or access, right? Even those more common words that we take for granted mean something different from parents to people that don't have kids or from wealthy to poor uh, are also across disciplines. So there's a lot of, you know, just getting on the same page, mm. actually understand what we're really talking about. How do you do that? Well, for us, we try to make something physical, you know, so let's design, let's make a prototype, let's design a place, let's put a bench out into a square, let's, uh, you know, let's design a area for a common experience. Mm. And now we can start to talk the same language. Oh, I'm pointing to this thing that you can also smell, touch and taste with me. And now we know what we're talking about. So the extent possible, we try to do that. So you're already doing, you described some incredible work that you're doing that we're actually doing with you in Copenhagen. But what's the dream project? What's the big picture? What what would be sort of the dream project for Jeff yeah. and girl in two or three years' time? Yeah. Well, um, 
I have a dream project that's actually very practical. Mm. So you have to bear with me. We like those. Um, I have been thinking for so long about school kitchens, actually, and about how we have this resource. We have these kitchens in schools, actually, all over the world that are only used a very small period of the day for a very specific task. At the same time, schools in the schoolyard, they're in all of our communities. We have a relationship with them. They can be places of of meeting and, and exchange. So I have this idea that if we can open up our schools, actually, open up the kitchen, open up the schoolyard, and make them not only be great places for education, you know, Monday through Friday, 8 to 2, but also really work like fantastic meeting points after school hours, on the weekends, for not only kids and their parents, but for a lot of other folks. It seems actually kind of simple, but I've been talking about it and trying to work with it for a few years, and there's so many barriers to it. Mm. Uh, so if we could achieve that in a couple of years, that would be absolutely dream. And again, it comes back to that systems-based thinking that you, you're known so well for in the, your organization. You know, you've got this school, but it's not just a school. Right. What else could it be? How could we use the downtime to add more value to society? And we can add layers to it, right? Then it's well, that's not only about education at the school. Education can happen other places in the city, yeah. right? So this idea of using space and resources and the things that we've already invested in in a different way is really, really fascinating. So we're going to leave school. Yeah, okay, and we're going to leave work. Yeah. And we're going to head home. We're going to have dinner. Yeah. I've invited myself, but you're allowed to invite three other people, dead or alive, any time in history, anywhere in the world. Who would they be? Yeah. I would love- You don't have to say Jan, your boss. <laughs> he comes over for dinner often enough. And you're also welcome. Good. Time good. Oh, I was just going to come. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, I would love to think about inviting dead people, but I can't bring myself to do it. So it's going to be, uh, I think about living folks. I've been obsessed lately with Yuval Harari, uh, this author of Sapiens and 21 Lessons mm. of the 21st Century. I would love to hang out with him. You know, he lives in silence two months of the year. So it would have to really make sure it's just after yeah, he came out of silence. Yeah, let's not invite him on that right? evening. So, so I'd love to have him. A huge hero of mine has always been Amartya Sen, mm. um, Nobel Prize yep. winning economist from India. Yep. Talked about capabilities with uh, with people. And then recently I just sort of read uh, this book by Annika Harris called Consciousness mm. uh, that was amazing about sort of how are we – what is consciousness? So if those three folks were there with you and me – not eating oatmeal, but something else, it would be pretty amazing. Wow. that The brain power in that dinner oh, is yeah. going to be pretty pretty incredible. Yeah. And I think they all listen. <laughs> it wouldn't just be one of them sort of, you know, pontificating. I think it would be a really… A meeting of the minds. Yeah, a meeting of the minds, exactly. So, what would you serve them? What, what brain food are you going to possibly feed those three incredible humans? It would be a 100% eat Lancet diet. Right. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 10 grams of meat or something, I think, if they hadn't eaten anything else that day. <laughs> so, so I promise we didn't pay him to say that. But the, the Lancet was published this year in 2019, uh, 37 of the world's leading scientists for two years and really answered the question, what does the planet need to eat by 2050 to safeguard the planet and nourish a global population? Yep. And the findings, the diet is, you know, dramatic increase in fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, whole grains, seeds, healthy oils, reductions for most rich countries like Copenhagen, like Denmark, Australia, the US, most of Europe uh, in red meat, uh, processed foods and sugars. What would you need to change most about your diet to live the Lancet way? Well, I think, uh, you know, we, we don't eat that. I've never been a big meat person, actually, but we would have to change how we know how to prepare some of that food, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's first the access to it 
and then being able to make sure that it's delicious. You know, mm. we actually just shifted. We have like most Danish companies, we have a common lunch delivered every day. It's always been really nice, healthy, organic. We shifted here um, about a year ago to a vegetarian, you know, only diet actually for lunch to help kind of practice what we preach to some extent. And it's uh, it's just been amazing. You know, people are seeing things that they hadn't seen before, taste that they haven't tasted. So it's really been educational, I think, for us as a as an office to um, to learn about that food. And that's the biggest challenge at home too, is to mm-hmm. is to just sort of uh, have in our culture sort of that those lessons, those recipes from home or the things that you knew how to make quick. We have to be able to I I would personally have to be able to be exposed to that and then learn something. Are you a cook? I'm definitely a cook. Very good. Yeah. But usually by the recipe. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Not not just sort of mm. like the flamboyant, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Like I need a... I the need, architect in you needs, needs a blueprint. I need a blueprint. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, for better or worse. But then I know it's going to be good. So let's wrap things up with some big questions. I feel like we've already, you know, we've had some big thinkers to dinner and now some big questions for dessert. Yeah. So what does food mean to you? You've lived in different parts of the world. You've described an incredible journey of your own. You've got a family. What does food mean to you? You know, it's changed so much. You know, I think, um, you know, growing up, it was kind of like, it's fast, it's on TV trays, we always ate in front of the TV, and it was just on the go. And that's sort of a stereotypical, um, maybe sort of, you know, lower middle class America. Mm. Uh, come to Denmark, and I had to, when I got married, I had to, I had to uh, warn my American friends that came. I said, we're going to eat for eight hours at this at this celebration. And they couldn't believe me. And then we ate for eight hours. So, as I've grown uh, older over time, food has become much more of this, you know, it's cliche to say ritual, but it's become this ritual of like, we're going to spend a lot of time together. Mm. And it starts when you start to make it, and it really ends when you also wash up together. So, the duration of of time that you can spend with uh, with people is is completely associated with food for me. And 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 it's it's that social component of it that I sort of assumed – everyone else had or maybe it's 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 everyone else everywhere else at least in scandinavian countries european countries but i don't necessarily think that's the that's the case no um but it's wonderful after you to sort of have stumbled upon it does it surprise you as someone who studies social systems you know who studies the social behaviors of humans does it surprise you that you're surprised that food is a social <laughs> such yeah, a social I grew up lubricant or a so- social element yeah yeah i grew I mean, up differently it was like it was like on the go get it over with okay eat and run you know so um, how do you feel about take a more positive note i mean how do you feel being an american in an incredible food culture like denmark yeah, well, it's gotten better. It wasn't so incredible 18 years ago. Copenhagen's uh, <laughs> pretty pretty astounding. But now it's in 2019, amazing. I have to say. Uh, now it's amazing, and I think that you know so many uh, you know Americans are coming there as well to mm. be part of that, uh, be part of that culture. But but it's it's transformational. It's affected so much of uh, of the life of the city. It's been a quality of life issue, mm. and I think it continues to sort of evolve. And that's why I'm really excited actually about uh, what you all are doing about the the you know thousand people gathered here. Is that there's this next sort of evolution of that food culture that uh, I'm really excited to embrace and help shape and, and sort of push along. So you describe it so well, This you know, there's a global urbanization, there's a global transformation towards urban living going on, but more people live in cities than ever before in history. Yeah. At the same time, we're talking about a global food transformation. What's the connection between an urban transformation and a food transformation? How do we make sure that they both catalyze each other in the direction we want? Yeah. So, 
Super tough, brilliant question. So let me tell you a, an anecdote <laughs> or a story to help. Uh, you don't have to have that. all the answers. Exactly. But... So, so um, my stepfather is obese. Mm. Uh, he has type 2 diabetes. Mm. He takes a lot of medication. He's a pharmacist. So um, he's, you know, well-educated and knows that he should eat a different way and behave a different way. But, you know, whatever, he doesn't. He comes to Copenhagen pretty often to visit my kids and spend time with us. And he started finding this miraculous thing is literally 24 hours after coming to Copenhagen, he can take half as much of his medication to keep his sugar levels stable. Where's he coming from? Coming from Colorado. From Colorado. So in Colorado, wow. really sedit sedentary lifestyle, you know, never really has an excuse to walk anywhere, eats a certain way. My kids always ask when we're there, is like, is grandpa on vacation? Because he gets to have extra, extra sweets and everything, right? When he comes to Copenhagen, he still basically eats the same way. You know, mm -hmm. my kids know that he's on vacation uh, mm -hmm. when he comes, but something about the environment changes. He doesn't have to change himself. It's the environment is different and he becomes healthier almost automatically. So I think that opportunity to mm -hmm. say that we can change an environment, this isn't about making every place Copenhagen at all, but it's saying, hey, we can change the system. We can change the way that our city works, we can invite, he just, you know, takes an extra walk down to the grocery store, spends more time at the table, whatever it is. I don't even know exactly, but there's something about that environment that's impacting his health. And I want to try to create more opportunities for more people to be part of that environment. So it's less about, hey, you, you're bad or good. You need to change. It's more about, hey, we've created a system, a city, a community, an environment that makes it much easier for you to be healthy. We've got some brilliant minds here this week from the scientific community. Is that is that a question that we need to put to the world scientists to unpick why it is that your father-in-law arrives in Copenhagen and the environment around him reshapes his health or begins to reshape his health within 24 hours? What yeah. what are the other big questions you would put to the world's leading scientists to help you in the great urban food transformation? Yeah, yeah. So would love to have some brilliant minds on that. I think, I, I think for me, I get excited about, I, I want people in life science, people in natural science, actually thinking more about social science. Mm. So, you know, of course that's because I'm a social scientist, but, <laughs> um, you know, you think about behavioral economics. Yeah. Right. And so that just transformed this very rigid field of, uh, of economics. And I want to see other combinations like that begin to come up. Uh, so, th so that question then becomes, of course, about his diet and about the, you know, medication and about his history and all those things. But then it's integrated very well with uh, this environmental question, the social, uh, mm -hmm. the sociology question. Mm -hmm. So more so than a particular question, I would say I want to see more collaboration across across scientists. And I want to see especially social science injected. I have to say, not to call out anyone, but it's always good for podcasts to be a little bit provocative. You guys just had Pat Brown, mm. uh, the founder of Impossible Meats. Brilliant guy, right? But I heard him say something that scared me about this tech science question, right? Because he's like, he compared basically the technology of what he's doing to make meat to like camera technology. And saying, well, 10 years ago, or it took 10 years for camera technology to be so good that now we walk around with this incredible camera and, and Kodak goes out of business. And to me, that connection where he says then also, hey, the technology around food is going to be so good that in 10, 15 years, we're not eating any animals anymore. And it was like, whoa, it's, you know, our food and our meals and this thing that I've been talking about, about how we eat together and the traditions and the recipes and the history is so much more intrinsically human and social than what a 
particular technology can fix. Mm. So I don't want to, you know, hold, you know, hang him out or say that that he shouldn't be part of the discussion. He should absolutely, but to think that technology is going to be the silver bullet alone in this question is to me incredibly misguided. Mm. So it has to have that technology, but we have to bring these other elements to it because there's nothing more sort of innately human and culturally sensitive than the choices around food. Mm. And so we can't just deny that and think that it's only only going to be science or only going to be tech. We need science and tech, but with this also cultural, social, um, anthropological, you know, sort of comes back to that system. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So last two questions. There are millions of incredible young people around the world the last few months who have taken to the streets demanding action on climate change. Yep. Jeff, what is it that gets you in the street protesting? What are you worried? What are you passionate about at the moment? Well, that it was exactly that. You know, Greta Thunberg with them. was in uh, Copenhagen two weeks ago. My kids told me about it, nine and six-year-old. I hadn't been out protesting in, I have to admit, a really long time. <laughs> and it was fantastic. And, and, and we made little signs at home, you know, and, and kids are so, so brilliant because their signs were so practical. They wanted to make a sign that says, use less power and save water and uh, reuse clothing. My nine-year-old's like completely into retouching up clothes because she found out how damaging the fashion industry is. So she's making all these incredibly ugly clothes from, you know, from skirts to shirts and pants to bags, but she knows about it. She cares. And so they like knew about this thing. We went there and it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. 40,000 people in, in Copenhagen. There were demonstrations in 12 different Danish cities, twice as many people as they expected. Want to do it again. <laughs> and and despite all this, Jeff, you seem like an optimist. Totally optimist. Yeah, mostly You're optimistic because, about the future. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. What well, keeps you? What keeps you optimistic? Your kids? Uh, I think kids, but I think also just you know, I'm a big lover of humanity, mm. right? And I think you know, we're intrinsically good. We want to do the right thing. We want to survive. So I'm I'm very optimistic because of just how we are as a human species. Basically, right? We have to stop some of the crazy stuff we're doing. But again, I think, you know, Scandinavia is such a great model for that. There's mm. this, there's so much pragmatism here. Mm. There's so much, it's like, let's do the right thing, you know, and less about left and right and, and all kinds of different agendas. It's, it, I, I want to take some of that, which I think is fundamentally sort of human pragmatism that people naturally have when they're not struggling, you know, to survive. But if you have a little bit extra capacity because you have your basic essentials covered, then, then we can get so much out of, of our collective sort of human um, capacity. Mm. And I want to try to get more of that out. And rather than a tech silver bullet or a science silver bullet, I want to try to empower as many people as possible to, and not, and that's arrogant for me to say empower them. I want as many people actively contributing to this through their everyday actions as possible. And if I can help invite that a little bit, brilliant. And then I'll be even more uh, optimistic. We share your vision. Yeah. Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure I think we're all going to move to Copenhagen now. Enjoy the rest of the forum. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we look forward to having you back again soon. Pleasure to be here. Thank you.